0: Today's guest, Robert Thurman, is a scholar and interpreter of Tibetan Buddhist philosophy. In his new book, Wisdom is Bliss, Four Friendly Fun Facts That Can Change Your Life, he offers an exploration into the nature of reality through Buddha's threefold curriculum of super-education. He invites us to travel the same road as the Buddha. Robert became a Tibetan monk at age 24. He was the first American to be ordained by the Dalai Lama. He is a translator of the Tibetan Book of the Dead and the author of Revolution. Robert is co-founder of Tibet House U.S. and is one of the most visible and respected Buddhist scholars and thinkers in the world. Welcome, Robert. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Well, thank you, Joan. It's very nice of you to have me on.
0: So, Robert, for our listeners who may not be familiar with Buddhism, can you briefly give us a basic understanding of what it is and its foundational beliefs?
1: Well, uh, I think the foundational beliefs is openness of mind rather than fastening on a particular slogan or credo you know, proposition and holding that as the essence of, of what you do. In fact, uh, in, in the case of Buddha, the idea is his recommendation to people was that they observe nature and reality, and observe themselves actually. And that if they did and look very carefully at things, they would discover that everything is really well organized and beautifully uh, present to their life, and that they are, and that the ultimate sort of level of life and death actually is really very good, and they have a wonderful opportunity as a human being to really find permanent joy and happiness and pleasure without leaving life, actually. And in fact, what you might call an infinite life. And uh, But he says believing in that is a good thing in the sense that it kind of encourages you to move forward. But the belief by itself is not enough. You have to experience it. And to do that, you have to observe things and investigate them very carefully, including yourself. That's sort of the basic thing. So in a way, it doesn't really fit our modern definition of religion in the sense that being a member of a certain group or holding a certain belief is enough. It's uh, it's uh, actually the purpose of our life is to discover and really experience what's really going on and get away from some sort of illusory preoccupations that cultures enforce upon us, so to speak. You know. So that was his great, that was the great kind of revolution that he uh, he uh, implemented in his day. And that's why it still goes on in the world. And the way I like to see it, I see the other religious teachers, the founders, as having been really in the same ballpark, really urging people to, you know, be loving, to enjoy things, and make others happy, and be altruistic, and so on. And then when it gets organized as a membership community and, quote-unquote, a religious belief, they then get a, tend to be only focused on a certain group, their own inner group, and they feel the membership of that group is enough. And so that's, that's where I think the organization, and that includes some Buddhist organizations, they get away from the founding, really, uh, uh, momentum of the, of the great teachers.
0: Well, and and I think you just hit upon a a major misconception, because I think a lot of people believe that if they practice a particular religion, that they cannot incorporate Buddhist philosophies into their life.
1: Right. That's right. They are used we are used to sort of depending on others. And so the idea is that they can then depend on, you know, Buddha or Krishna or Jesus or someone, and they will take care of the difficulties of life. And rather than seeing themselves as having that responsibility, and that those teachers showed a way through which we can exercise and we can educate ourselves, and then we will ourselves become able to sort of save ourselves, so to speak, by in, in relationship, of course, to others, but not depending on them to save us. And so since we're accustomed, though, as children, to depending on our parents and so on, it's natural that we would then... Turn religions into something that they can do the job for us, and then we become very attached to them and then also we think that those who don't belong to the same one something wrong with them and that's very unfortunate you know? so my, my my message in the book is that wisdom is bliss you know that you when you know what you are and when you know and and not just know it as a theory but know it by experience and develop confidence in what you are then you will be blissful, you will be happy. So we have that slogan, right? Right, Joan? We say ignorance is bliss.
0: Right. And unfortunately, that's what most people practice.
1: (laughs) I know, I know. Well, that's also because they've been convinced by political authorities in all thousands of years, cultural authorities, and it's often spiritual authorities who often collude with the political authorities. And um, they've been convinced that reality is scary, it's bad, it's dangerous, everything goes wrong all the time. And so they therefore would rather not know. So they would rather live in denial and feel that that's, that'll be okay and they'll somehow get out of having to face reality. Whereas if they get the original openness of mind like idea and they, they observe, in detail the lives of the great teachers of the religion, then they will realize that they have the ability to understand, and they did understand, and they set an example, and then the people who have observed them well, they will live like them, and they will be happy.
0: You wrote, be the student with a beginner's mind, no matter how versed you may be in something, there's always something more to understand. And I really wish more people followed this advice because you've spent five minutes on social media just to see that everyone is an expert and knows everything that there is to know about everything. And I think we're doing (laughs) ourselves a disservice by living life that way.
1: Well, right. Although it is good to learn from everyone else. Actually, the great um, teachers of humanity were always learning, you know, for example, take Jesus. He was always speaking in parables, people notice. And that's because he was noticing things around him, like the flowers in the field, like the weather, like the plants, like the, how the people were behaving. So that means that although he was the the model and the ideal of a compassionate, kind, and self self transcending person, uh, he was also learning by 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 being not obsessed with himself, but looking around him and observing others and listening to them. So if everybody knows everything, well, that's great, Well, let's find out what they have to say. Right. <laughs> If someone could really confuse inside in fact, if we observe them carefully, we'll come to notice it. And if we let them, however, have their say, they themselves will sometimes realize maybe they're a little off balance, you know.
0: Does peace come from having this openness of mind that you described? I think so. It really does. And,
1: um, you know, because you're not defending. You know how some people will say, well, my wife will say sometimes, oh, actually, who's one of my teachers, one of my main teachers, and she would say, Well, would you rather be right or would you rather be happy? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and people, and I think that's a very good saying because sometimes, you know, you get like your point of view is the only one, you know, and therefore, and you would want to impose that on everybody else. And when they resist you, you get frustrated or even angry. And then um, the point is that if you are willing to sort of be open, well, maybe I'm a little bit, maybe I'm not, I don't have the whole picture. You try to see the bigger picture in situations. By being open-minded, listen to what the other people have to say, then, then you will be more at ease, actually more relaxed, because you're, you know, you're like flowing with the river, you're not holding up some sort of an obstruction to the flow, you know, so you can sort of more fit in with life. And, you know, we humans are very, very other-oriented. You know, we, when, when, when other people are happy and, and love us because we're nice to them and so on, then we feel good when we get good feedback from them. When we are harsh with people and then they harsh back, we feel terrible. So, so we're very interactive, really, people, you know, as animals, you know. And um, among the animal kingdom, we're almost the most altruistic. That's why we have language, because we can listen to others, you know, and they can take, they can share their mind and their outlook with us. And that's a great blessing that we have, you know. On the other hand, you one thing that Buddha noticed and also Jesus and also the great Indian, other Indian teachers and Chinese was that uh, they noticed that if we if we insist on being very self-centered and, and always hold, upholding ourselves as the main thing in the world, we will usually be frustrated and we will suffer. You know, so that's one reason people have misunderstood Buddhism very, very much, because Buddha said. His first friendly fact was, well, don't worry if you're frustrated and you have a lot of stress and you suffer if you don't know who you are and where you are and what your life is. And you're afraid of many things that you don't need to be afraid of. And you're not afraid of some things that actually you should be cautious about. And so, you know, like Socrates, he said, if you don't examine life, then, well, Socrates was more pessimistic than Buddha. Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living, and Buddha never said that. Especially, human life is very worth living, always as much as possible, because it's such a, a wonderful intelligence that we have, and we're so we are naturally so open-minded compared to other forms of animal life, of of living beings. You know. So the thing is, we shouldn't be upset, but still a friendly fact. You know that that. You'll be stressed out if you think you're the only one of importance in the world. And that's, that's a friendly fact because then it gives you the motive to be less self-centered, to pay more attention to others. And when you do that, you inevitably become happy, happier.
0: You know, I, I think this book is just so timely because you talk about getting away from being self-centered and so much of what I'm seeing out there today is about people being self-centered. And and if we go down that path and we continue in that direction, I really am afraid for our future generations of of what we will be like as humans. So I think this messaging is really so important.
1: Right. Well, well, you know, a lot of people in our leadership who are really fairly unhappy people, actually, I think it's kind of a rule of life that the person who seeks power over others, is often someone who's not happy in themselves. So they think that by dominating others, they're going to get happy. But then actually, when they dominate others, others resent them and send them bad feedback. Right. And they get more, and it makes it worse. So it's actually the opposite method. They're, they're they're engaged in the wrong method. But unfortunately, because of that, a lot of people who have power in our society, sort of, supposed opposed leaders, they tend to be very, very, insecure and therefore very self-centered, you know, with the polarization in our society that you mentioned, you know, where there's the people on the right and the left, and they're so sort of rigidly ready to do violence practically to each other. And the thing is that let them all keep their views is the idea. Don't argue with anybody. But the thing is this, object to them being angry about their views. You don't want to be too unhappy all day long yourself personally. So therefore, try not to be angry with people who are caught in whatever you think they're caught in. Just love them, want the meaning, want them to be happy. And if they're happily holding whatever idea they have, they won't be so harsh in trying to inflict it on others. And then we can come back together and have discussions, and maybe everyone will see a bigger picture than whatever their theory is. So I, I just think that it's essential, and I really want to get that. I'm really not selling Buddhism. I don't want anybody to convert to Buddhism, but I just want everyone to, whatever they do, whatever they hold on to, try to do it more happily and don't feel that they won't be happy until they've destroyed somebody else. And, because that's what sort of makes them um, uncomfortable, and that's what makes it impossible to meet other people. You know? And I think we will succeed, by the way, Joan. I'm mm-hmm. very optimistic. I do think that, that everyone will kind of cheer up and calm down uh, as uh, as time goes on because we sort of have to, you know, because you can't really do something even about a bad situation if you let it make you completely miserable. When you're really miserable, you have much less energy and much less skill in dealing with difficulties, you know. You, when you feel kind of happy, a little dingy, you know, you have zest and enthusiasm because you feel a little... And happy, then you really can work on difficulties much better.
0: So we're each responsible for our own inner peace and our own happiness. Is there an exercise that you would recommend we practice each day? Yes, counting your blessings,
1: seeing the glass half full, and so and so that means that you know try to. It's like it's like a mom, you know, a mom is checking out at the counter in the in the grocery store. And she has her little four-year-old with her who's just running around. He's nearby. And at the checkout counter, they have all candy. Uh, the marketer was put the candy. <laughs> you know? So then the kid wants some heavy-duty candy. He wants to grab a pistol of it. And, the, and then mom says, no, because too much sugar is not good. And she, she's trying to pay the bill and, and pack the bags, you know. <laughs> And then he has a tantrum. So the good mom, who doesn't let it get to her and just gets mad because he's having a tantrum and embarrassed and completely freaks out, the good one figures out a way to distract the kid from the candy about we're going to go see Uncle Joe, or we're going to go to the playground, or we're going to go home, et you know, whatever it is. She doesn't just go straight into you know, having a tantrum herself because the kid is having a tantrum. She keeps her good cheer, and she distracts the uh, little uh, guy from his wish to grab that that candy and uh, every mom who is in a good mood has that skill and actually you know everybody knows this but when you feel good you can manage difficulties and and they never they don't get to you because your happiness is so strong the whole secret of the British Empire was have a cup of tea when you're about to freak out you know so I think that's the, the message is to find joy in little things. Uh, don't let yourself develop very strong sense of discomfort, mental discomfort by seeing something that you think is wrong or not seeing something that you think is good being obstructed by something. And just act to deal with these problems without losing your good cheer. And science tells us if you're in a good mood, you're being more healthy. So it's just common sense in a way. It isn't really Buddhism what I'm talking about. It's just common sense, and having more faith in your own common sense, and your own common sense would make you cheery, in whatever happens to you. So then, Joan, you interview a lot of people who do who have some sort of hope and express some sort of useful methods for people. And what what has uh, how does it fit with your
0: mind? We have to do the work. You, you know, it's it's a decision to say I'm not going to spend my days scrolling social media, getting engaged in the news, fighting with everyone I meet. And that's why I like what you're saying about don't engage with that. We have control over how we react to everything around us. And that's probably the most important lesson that I've learned in doing this for 11 years. It's that I can control my life. You know, I can't control what everyone else does. I can listen. I can control my response to it and how I allow it to impact me. And that's pretty much how I try to live my life now. everything you've been talking about today.
1: Oh that's great I'm so happy I really am and I really want I really hope people will, will think about and they don't think that it's just oh, so, oh Buddhism and Buddhism is some weird thing that I don't do In fact, I was just thinking you were making me think that when I left uh, my Harvard uh, many years ago when I was 20 years old seeking some more things what I was looking for was... Some sort of teaching, what I, what I called, I remember saying at the time, I was looking for a yoga about my own emotions, you know, how to, to handle them. You know, I knew a little bit already about physical yoga, about handling the body and keeping it limber and loose and healthy and so on. And uh, I knew some stuff about, about uh, you know, theories of, of scientific theories, et cetera, and philosophical theories. But I didn't, and I knew about psychiatry. But I didn't feel that psychiatry knew the psychiatrist knew very well how to handle your own emotions. And but not just suppress them or or take some 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 tranquilizer or something to to modify them, but how to handle the energy of them that yourself and turn them whenever those emotional energies turn negative for you or for anyone else, how to shape that turn the same kind of energy but turn it positive, you know. And, um, and so I went to India looking for that. I wasn't really looking for a different religion, some new thing to believe. I was looking for method. I was looking to expand my education. And that's why you mentioned in the beginning, introducing the book, that I was teaching the three super educations, the education of ethics, the education of the mind, how, how to deal with the emotional elements of the mind, and the intellectual ones as well, and then the education of the wisdom, Toward understanding what reality is of the self and of others, and uh, and that's what and therefore you know although I was a monk at first because in the Buddhist culture, by being a monk, that's how you get a scholarship. <laughs> in other words, once you become a monk, then people will, will give you a free lunch, and then you can study all day and you don't pay taxes and you don't have to go in the army and you don't have to whatever. You can just take care of uh, you can study and study and develop and develop it. And, and learn how to manage things and how to be happy. and uh, But then uh, there is no such culture for me because the world is the way it is and the communists destroyed Tibet and so on. So it's a written culture pretty much up till now, although we're trying to keep some aspects of it alive at Tibet house. But the point is, I then resigned as a monk so I decided to become a professor and an educator. So really I'm just teaching in my book and all my books I have been kind of teaching an expansion of our education, you know. And that's my, that's my whole sort of uh, mission, you could say. It's not to develop religion in any way, it's to develop, uh, although, even people who have religion should, re, should j- try to adopt methods to educate themselves, you know. Like one thing, for example, the Dalai Lama thinks that Buddhist monks and nuns are not as good as Christian monks and nuns in doing things like starting schools. Are developing hospitals, you know, doing sort of charity things. You know, they more they spend the whole time meditating kind of and doing that. So he walked, He sends them to Christian monasteries everywhere to learn and to Christian institutions around the world to learn how to help people. So he, he thinks it's fine to learn from Christianity things that they do well without having to change from being a Buddhist. And so he encourages people. He says, if you're Jewish or Muslim or Christian, or Hindu, please stay with whatever grandma's religion was yourself, but by all means learn from every other religion. And that way, we won't have inter-religious conflict in the world. And we will appreciate that every one of the spiritual institutions that humans have developed is trying to better the human condition and the society and the planet and, and the life of the individual.
0: The book is Wisdom is Bliss, Four Friendly Fun Facts That Can Change Your Life, if you'd like to get more information about Bob and his work, you can visit bobtherman.com. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. I'm so happy that you were here to share all of this with us.
1: Well, thank you, Joan. I'm very happy to have been with you.
0: Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now.